Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. What we're going to talk about today is Lafayette, both the marquee and the park. But it's not a park. It's actually called Lafayette Square, Uh um, which is a little disappointing. I was hoping we could call this podcast Lafayette, Marquee, and Park, or Mark and Park. (laughs) Marquee, Marquee, Parky, Squarey. Anyway, we're going to talk about Lafayette, both the Marquis de Lafayette, as well as the park that bears his name, which is a square. Uh, which was commemorated to Lafayette at the tail end or in the, you know, second part or later part of his grand pass through the 13 colonies in 1823 and 24. He came to the United States to be feted by all and sundry. And, um, you know, it was 1824, 1825. Yeah, that's what I have in the Columbia Viking Desk Encyclopedia. Oh, also, right. I would like to say his name. Is that is this a good time to say it? Oh, this, you mean his full name? His full name. I have it here in this amazing uh, encyclopedia that I found in the garbage in the East Village 27 you, years ago. Do you feel as though, however, the saying of his name is slightly undemocratic and, and weird and some... Uh, yeah, aristocratic, you mean? fetish of the old world okay his real name according to this uh columbia viking desk encyclopedia volume two is marie joseph paul eve roque gilbert du motier de la marquis de lafayette marquis is part of his name according to this yeah. well lafayette i i looked up um is from the Occitan language, and it, it means uh, huh. beach beech tree. I think it's La Feta, beech tree, which is a very sociable tree, and dare I say a democratic tree. They tend to grow <laughs> in groves and get together and have a group symbiotic uh, collective life. Huh. Comitas. So, so he had these very deep aristocratic roots. Really. Yeah, well, he came from sort of uh, in the south central France, was born, I think, in mm. 1857. And he was kind of from an area of France that's a little bit like being from Ohio or, you know, it's a little <laughs> in a forgotten zone of France. And he was the son of a military man. And initially, his prospects weren't all that good. But then through a series of deaths of relatives and in-laws and things like that, he wound up, I guess, by the time he was a teenager, a mid-teenager, as one of the wealthiest people in France. Yeah, I, I myself, in terms of preparation, listened to a book on tape uh, about Lafayette took no notes and just sort of have it sloshing around in my head. Do you know the name of the book? Uh, It's called Marquis uh, Lafayette Revisited. 
Yeah, it's written by, by Laura Arikio. When was he born? You said 1857, but you meant... Oh, that's right. 1757. I so apologize. I'm really... These dates uh, bounce around in my... I have dyslexia. My dyslexic head. Do you really? Yeah, I do. I have a mild form of dyslexia. It's a little bit of a challenge. I was struck by the fact that he came to the colonies as a very young man. He was only 19 years old. Right. He's like the age of the people you're teaching, kind of. Yeah. And at 19, he was made a major general, but initially he was not given any American troops to command. He came over to to Georgetown, South Carolina, and that major general thing was something that was cooked up while he was over in in France. Ah. And it was brokered by the sort of proto-United States representative in Paris. And when he... Finally, after, you know, a certain amount of struggle making his way from South Carolina up to Philadelphia, they didn't initially recognize it and actually told him to go home. Right. Yeah, he was. This is I watched uh, or listened to mostly this bizarre, these so-called documentaries that are on YouTube. Mine is called Washington's Generals Marquis de Lafayette. I mean, I think there might be a colon hidden in there. And uh, that's what they said, that this guy, this kind of hustler in France told Lafayette, come to America, you will definitely make you a uh, an officer. And then he gets here, he goes to the Congress, the uh, Continental Congress, they say, get lost. Then they get a letter from Benjamin Franklin, who's already in Paris, who writes to them and says, pay attention to this guy. He's rich, well-connected family. We need this guy on our side. And then they change their mind. That's what it said in this. He was principally connected to the court of Versailles through his wife, mm. uh, Adrienne. Super interesting person, too. His wife, you know, later in his life, more or less got him out of the Prussian jail where he was parked after the reign of terror mm-hmm. and after the French Revolution went down. I thought it was Austrian. Um, I think of Austrian, Prussian, I get a little uh, confused about that. But I think in his last years, I think when Bonaparte eventually released them and his wife and his kids were living with him then, I believe it was in a Prussian jail. But I, you know, and I think that was he must have married really young, right? Like he came to America, he's 19 and he's writing letters to his wife. Yeah, I think he it was a pre-arranged marriage. I think he was married when he was like 14 or 15 or something like wow. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, but he when he was with, 13. He laid with her and he, he, she was pregnant with his daughter oh. um, when he left. I'm not sure if he ever had met his daughter, who, who while he was in the United States, died. His oh, my first God. Daughter. Yeah. And when he was 13, he joined something called... It's called something like the generals, the king's musketeers, which are the same musketeers that are in the novel, The Three Musketeers. Right. Yeah. At that point, that musketeer crew was considered to be slightly um, ineffectual. Um, Somehow they'd blown it recently in terms of defending the king or whatever it was. And I talked to an American historian friend of mine who specializes in the history of the early republic. And he characterized Lafayette as a very important figure. 
more of a strategist, organizer, and funder than he was a general. Uh-huh. Although he did command um, troops, right? And he was given the senior position in the Continental Army after he, he left the colonies in the middle of the war, returned oh. to France, and he was able to convince um, the French to, to support the effort and returned in 1780 with troops and money. That was his great contribution. It really helped to um, legitimize uh, Adams and Jefferson and the other founding fathers, but primarily through financial and logistical support. Also, this documentary that I listened to made a lot of him writing his letters to his wife and to government officials, was the phrase they used, justify... uh, he loved the Continental Army, thought it was a great army, and he believed in the American cause. And he's, and you know, the French, uh, the French king um, uh, forbid him to come to America. He he didn't even want him to come here, but eventually was convinced, particularly by what was it, the Battle of Saratoga? There was one. Well, there was the victory. Battle of Brandy, the Battle of Brandywine, where he was wounded in the yes. leg. And that was sort of like suddenly there was another face to the Revolutionary War, this French guy. And that was picked up by the newspapers of the time. And he became a bit of a hero out of that. It said in the documentary, his first battle was almost his last because he was wounded in the leg. He's nobly uh, grouping together. He's rallying the American. What a what a uh, distinction. He's rallying the American troops at Brandywine who are being attacked by General Howe, who wants to take Philadelphia, which is essentially the uh, capital of, of, the, of the 13 colonies. So he's, they're losing at Brandywine. Uh, Lafayette charges into the middle of the battle, loses, and then groups the men to orderly retreat. That's his achievement. They retreat to the woods in an orderly manner, and he gets wounded. But he's impetuous, brave. He's a lot like Washington, who also, Washington had some kind of crazy belief that he couldn't be killed. These guys were like Native American warriors. They're like, you know, it's a good day to die. I'm just marching in there. Whatever happens to me, God will protect me. Yeah. Well, I guess the rap is that Washington was a father figure to Lafayette. Lafayette had lost his father when he was about when I was two years old. So he never really had a father. Also, Lafayette had gotten religion on the Freemasons. He'd been introduced to the Freemasons through a English, I think, he was a naval captain or maybe he was in you know a general or marine or some such thing mm. so he'd been introduced to freemasonry which must also have been a kind of undercurrent of of glue between he and washington a lot of these founders they were all freemasons that's like the secret meaning of the of the american revolution it's like the freemasons against the king and this church and all these like you know, it's like a kind of a, I don't know, almost like the communism of its time kind of Freemasonry. In, in terms of the influence of George Washington, uh, I know that Lafayette, I believe, named his youngest son George Washington. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and he named one of his daughters Virginia after oh. Virginia, the state of. And also his father, when he was killed at the age of, 
when when Lafayette was two, his father was killed by the English in the Seven Years' War. So, you know, maybe he wasn't that unhappy about fighting the English uh, 17 years later. Yeah, Hamlet and Hamlet's father, right? Avenging the death of the father. All right. Has anyone written the Oedipal story of uh, Marquis de Lafayette? Um, not that I'm aware of, but um, maybe considering that you wrote a book on Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, yeah. which has Oedipal undertones, actually. I, I think of Lincoln, as I say in the book, because I was reading from the book recently, I did some reading over Zoom, and then I noticed that I wrote that Lincoln was a completely Oedipal Oedipal dude you know he hated his father and loved both of his mothers his mother and his stepmother in terms of angles on lafayette and potential books this american historian friend of mine named anthony antonucci he teaches in the uh, university of california system he's the americanist he was saying that che guevara and lafayette have a fair amount in common and that a really mm -hmm. interesting book to be written or dissertation to be written would be on those two figures yeah, I was thinking immediately when we were starting to think of Lafayette, I was thinking of Che Guevara. You were? Yeah. yeah. I mean, because, you know, he's like this, he's just the figure that comes to mind, this heroic, except that he didn't die young. And apparently, um, after the American Revolution and after the, the French Revolution, Lafayette played a role in South American politics as well, revolutionary yeah. movements um, through his epistolary correspondences. Huh. Well, I mean, Lafayette had the scheme that he cooked up with Washington in the seven in the later 1780s, I think around 87, in which Lafayette bought a plantation in French New French French Guinea down in huh. South America, and I guess Cayenne, I think, is the town. Or city, I, I don't know. And his scheme was to buy these plantations, and he used those as a laboratory to figure out a system for liberating the slaves in the United States. And, you know, Washington also followed through with this kind of scheme where he bought a bunch of places around Mount Vernon and tried to institute this thing where slaves could work off their slavery or were emancipated and then expected to work, you know, within the within the plantation as tenant farmers or something like that. And of course the scheme was did not find its way onto the horizon. But nevertheless, Lafayette was actively trying to find ways to free slaves, to free black slaves in, in the South. And Washington is the only one of the founders. Now you say founders, not founding fathers, according to some recent book I read. Uh, he's the only one to free all of his slaves at his death. But he it's complicated because his wife officially owned the majority of slaves on his plantation. So... In fact, he only freed like 113 of the 450 slaves at Mount Vernon. But, you know, he freed all the ones he could legally free. In terms of the, uh, the human rights and his desire to abolish slavery and fighting for these revolutionary causes, um, something I don't have a handle on, maybe the two of you do, are the intellectual sources that um, inspired uh. by it. 
Am I correct to assume that he was inspired by the same Enlightenment political philosophy that riveted Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, any of the founders? Do, do either of you have a sense? I have no well, I think, clue because I'm everything I do is based on uh, YouTube and they are complete intellectual uh, agnostics. They don't know that there is such a thing as intellectual influences. What they say, the very beginning of this uh, beautiful documentary says, a direct descendant of old French knights who fought in the Crusades and alongside Joan of Arc. So they really want to mythologize him and make him a knight. Not Che Guevara, but a knight fighting for the noble cause against the dragons of uh, British uh, royalty. So, you know, that's about as far as they go towards uh, the causes of his thinking. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, Lafayette saw published in 1787 his Declaration of the Rights of Man, and he spoke that declaration to a some kind of constituent body of, of French legislators who said, oh, this is terrific. You know, let's put this into committee. Let's not make a public declaration and let's talk about it. And mm -hmm. that was voted on. But simultaneous to the Marquis declaring, you know, speaking this thing, he'd already sent messengers to Paris to have it printed and be disseminated. But mm. right on the heels of that was Louis XVI firing some cat who had been a strong advocate for, you know, civil liberties and human rights. He'd exiled him or created a circumstance into which he was jettisoned. And that was actually the point at which the French Revolution got teeth. In terms of its antecedents, you know, a strong force was Jefferson's Declaration of Independence as well as the Articles of the Constitution. And Jefferson at that point was in Paris and Lafayette had sent this declaration to Jefferson for his edits and I believe Jefferson didn't really mess with it too much. He got he was mm. uncomfortable with interfering too much. And so I believe Lafayette wrote that with another person, but it was kind of Lafayette mm. cobbling together a bunch of other things. And mm. I did give it a look over. It seemed kind of uh, it seemed interesting and something potentially that we could discuss, you know, in and of itself as a poem. You know, mm -hmm. among a few other of these uh, these kinds of declarations and, you know, that Jefferson himself wrote as well as others around that period of time, maybe. I mean, my guess was that uh, Lafayette was not an intellectual. You know, the way he's portrayed in this uh, documentary, it seems like he's a kid. He's a kind of, uh, you know, determined to take action. He thinks on his feet. And uh, and Washington also, uh, you know, was not a deep thinker, although Washington, I listened to some long book on tape about him recently. What was it called? A passionate, dispassionate man or something. Anyway, he's he was like obsessed with ancient Rome, uh, Washington. He was like basically a Roman stoic 
living in the 18th century. That's the way they portrayed him in this book. The two character flaws that seem to come up with Lafayette are that he was a bit vainglorious, I think is the Uh, term. He was hmm. a little bit overkill in his thirst for fame, which was considered, you know, in the 18th century, you know, a cardinal virtue you know, particularly among the nobility, to seek fame, and also of being impetuous and being a little bit not taking into account risks involved in proposing different expeditions and campaigns in the war, and even in later life in the way in which he operated in France, you know, understanding that he was a hero initially of the French Revolution And a year after the storming of the Bastille, there was an enormous public fetting of Lafayette with huge parades and uh, fireworks Mm -hmm. and him on this sort of multi-level pedestal. And And this celebration of Lafayette and the revolution to which he was tied, Louis XVI was in this little box separated from the whole thing and behind a curtain, like he was just completely set to the side. But Lafayette, that was sort of the apogee of his French uh, ascendance. And then, you know, at that point, he was head of the, what had been the Parisian militia, but then subsequently became the National Guard. And so his idea was to establish a constitutional monarchy and the revolutionaries in Paris and in France would have none of it. And so he found himself on the losing end and had to balance these two forces, the monarchical forces and the revolutionary forces. And, um, you know, he wound up getting in a jam and being imprisoned for uh, at least five years. Very interesting stories about that. What's interesting about Lafayette is that there was a period of time in which was not a French citizen. Americans were wary of getting involved with liberating him or getting involved with sort of the interstitial European scene. And so the, the Americans were not disavowing, but keeping their distance. And he was imprisoned in Austria, Prussia, you know, in one of these German uh, enclaves. For five years, he didn't have a country. He was kind of without a country, which I which I think is a significant parallel to Lafayette Square, to what happened <laughs> last Monday, you know, or last Tuesday, when it was fenced off with this eight-foot fence, you know, they closed off Lafayette Square, which necessarily was hmm. the event which precipitated our talking at this moment. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Although, I don't know if you can equate uh, Donald Trump with the French Revolution, maybe. I mean, they seem to be somewhat opposite tendencies, although there is a kind of... It depends what you think of the French Revolution. I was... My dad's an old communist, and he he recently was reading... uh, Maybe I told you guys this. He was reading uh, A Tale of Two Cities, and he stopped reading it. He said, "Uh, Dickens is a reactionary. He's against the uh, uh, French Revolution. And I was like, well, maybe he's against the excesses of the French Revolution. And then my dad said, then he thought about it for a moment. My dad is 101, old communist. And then he said, well, when you think of all the exploitation of the aristocrats, it was not very much. 
the reign of terror wasn't bad. So, you know, he's defending, my dad is defending the reign of terror. But there is a kind of, there is a kind of reign of terror vibe to uh, Trump. I mean, you know, I think people that call him a clown fascist, which is what I was also separately calling him, you know, at first, when I first sort of thought about him. I mean, you know, he's a, it's, he's a jokester and a fascist both. But he he promises a reign of terror. Maybe he never quite delivers it, but he wants to be a reign of terror, I think, Trump. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't necessarily equating it to the French Revolution, but just the fact that Lafayette squares become this no man's land, become this hmm. void, become yeah. this, it's a rectangle, so it's kind of like an empty page that they've created, and that <laughs> it's this buffer zone between the White House and the protesters, and then subsequently the mayor of of Washington painted in this large yellow letters on 16th Street, which is caddy corner or perpendicular to the park, but at the same time a direct line toward the White House, you know, Black Lives Matter architecture in terms of this moment. And And Lafayette is in the middle of it. Yeah, and he renamed the street too. My sister uh, yeah. wrote on Facebook. She that did. The, I think it's a it's a, the mayor's a woman, by the oh, way. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. The, uh, my sister wrote on uh, Facebook that the White House is now at 1600 Black Lives Matter Plaza. Or six. I don't know if that's true, but that's what she said. Nice. Yeah, and yeah. also Lafayette was head of the National Guard. Right. Uh, you know, and so he he also was in this precarious situation in which Trump is calling up all of these ICE and military kind of groups that he has a relative control over in, you know, in the lost colony, which we call the United you know, Washington, D.C. Um, <laughs> and so there's that kind of precariousness. And also keep in mind, Lafayette was 19 when he arrived in the United States and when he returned to France after the Battle of Yorktown, you know, and a uh, hero of this revolution, he was only 20, what he was, 26 years old. So he was young, just like the relative demographic of the protesters. Right, he was a millennial. Yeah. A millennial of his era. Yeah. How does it work if you're you're a millennial? My daughter was born in 91. She's a millennial. He was born, though, in 1757, so that doesn't make, I guess, he was more of a mid-century, a boomer. (laughs) But in terms of the significance of the um, courting off of Lafayette Square and how that could be interpreted through the uh, the lens of um, Lafayette's life, my friend Anthony mentioned something to me that I thought was really interesting. It's already been um, up to, and that was the return to the um, the Young Republic across 1824 and 1825, when he made this tour of 24 states. My friend said that this was more important uh, in many respects than Lafayette's work during the American Revolution, because it was mm. the moment, a moment rather, of unprecedented national unity and remembrance of the revolution and what it meant to a growing country in the midst of the market revolution. So in 1825, the country is on the edge of Jacksonian democracy. It's lost in many respects. And through Lafayette's triumphant return, there's this rallying 
that occurs that um, plays no small role in creating um, some narrative of national unity. It's also interesting that Lafayette was the last surviving French general of the uh, American Revolution in 1824. Yeah, and also there were a whole bunch of, I think we should, it should be sort of our job in this whatever memorializing of Lafayette to also uh, thank if we want to, I guess we can thank them. Uh, the, all the lots of French um, soldiers and uh, officers fought in the American Revolution. You know, it was not, it was it wasn't only him. It was a whole kind of movement. And of course, a lot of it had to do. I mean, this I did a little research on the uh, struggle between um, England and France has been going on for centuries at this point, and it happens that I'm listening to this um, series of lectures called The Italians Before Italy, Conflict and Competition in the Mediterranean by Kenneth R. Bartlett of the University of Toronto. So I'm actually up to uh, the Hundred Years' War, which is 1337 to 1453, between the House of Plantagenet in England and the House of Valois, in France, and the question was who was going to rule France, whether the English would rule France, and of course, kind of at the center of that war is uh, Joan of Arc, born roughly 1412, died, burned at the stake in 1431 at the age of 19, kind of the sort of same magic age as uh, Lafayette, who was supposedly tied to her by his uh, ancestry of... uh, these knights that fought for him. So the, yeah. the English and the French have been fighting for centuries at this point. And so it's a it's a complicated, you know, they're both monarchies. You know, you te- I tend to kind of think, oh, well, the French, they were revolutionaries, so they would be against the English. But in fact, it was still a kind of corrupt monarchy. Yeah. What's interesting is that both, you know, Lafayette and Joan of Arc, in terms of the contemporary dynamic, which, you know, Sparrow necessarily in positing this podcast, you know, I was hoping that we could also just talk about the protests, you know, in a oh, more yeah. frank and outright way. But one of the things that I've heard, you know, because I watch the news, you know, to sort of catch up on things and try and get it, keep track of what's happening. I often hear people saying, oh, what we need at this point is a leader. Oh, we need uh-huh. somebody who can speak for the country, who can bring about what I think or what we all anticipate is that is a kind of recalibration of this experiment in self-governance. And that, you know, I would think that, I guess people are saying, oh, maybe this, this, these millennials, right, in their 20s and 30s, out of that should emerge some figure who will be their leader, similar to Joan of Arc, say, um, you know, who can be the spokesperson and rally this group and bring about change through a formal movement. But you see, I question that. Do we mm. need another, you know, maybe the nature of this movement has more of an egalitarian tempo, a little bit similar to, say, Zuccotti Park. Yeah, that's what I, the, I see also that as, yeah. as the sort of lineage I really see all these things, maybe just because I spent a certain amount of time at Occupy Wall Street when it was happening. Right when it happened, there was a flood here 
my uh, the, the, the stream, the creek, the Esopus Creek flooded. And my wife, you know, and our whole garage was full of mud. And uh, my wife said, no, you can't go down to uh, Occupy Wall Street. You have to help clean up the house, which was a reasonable thing. But it was really was frustrating for me. But eventually I got to go a number of times. And I see a lot, you know, even a lot of Black Lives Matter, uh, a lot of the techniques, the tactics, the style, this new kind of politics that I think was invented, to my mind, was invented at Occupy, uh, has influenced everything since. And so it's the first demonstration that I've ever been to with no speeches. And uh, in fact, they had a big demonstration, Occupy demonstration in Union Square. (laughs) I think there were no speeches, only music. And uh, the other day, there was a demonstration that a couple of friends of mine, that my daughter and my friend Eli went to at um, the Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn, uh, Haitian drum circle. Same thing, music, no speeches. And no speeches means there's no party line, there's no ideology, there's nothing to disagree with. You know, and I was sort of discussing this with my daughter, like, it's it's a natural... And the other thing that happened from Zuccotti Park is no permit to have demonstrations where the demonstrations just appear they're illegal they can morph any way they want they can move in any direction literally and figuratively and then yeah i was like in occupy times square you get to time and then you have a kind of a democratic system of the uh, what do you call the people's people's megaphone where one person in the center speaks you know one person says we are here in Times Square. And then the immediate circle of people around them repeat it. And then yeah. the further circle repeats that. And anybody can get to the cir- center of the circle and speak and be amplified by this. Because uh, because in Zuccotti Park, there was no uh, electricity was not allowed. So this was forced to improvise this method. So with this leaderless method, I think, seems to work. I mean, look at Congress just passed this bill. I mean, the Democrat in Congress just proposed a sweeping, I think a really impressive police reform bill so soon after the, during the protests, without anybody articulating in any uh, organized way the, the, the ideas, you know? It just moves by osmosis. I, think. I, I like the bill. I, I looked into it last night. It oh, is, yeah? Yeah, it's, imp- it's impressive. Um, I'm, I'm less sold on the, um, this notion of um, abolishing police. Or well, no, the, the term is defund. defund. I mean, I suppose the, the like extreme end of it, which my daughter happens to believe in, is to abolish the police. But uh, defund the police is a, is a phrase that, you know, I almost deliberately has all sorts of, you know, unclear meanings. But I think w- way the way most people take it is just give less money to the police because there is so much less crime than there was 30 years ago. I mean, it seems like there were probably way too many police officers for the amount of crime there is. Kamala Harris was saying that a lot of cities spend a third of their budget on the police. A third mm-hmm. of their budget? Is that the right amount to go to police? Especially since the uh, militarization of the police force. Yeah. Billions of dollars on uh, excess Humvees and body armor and automatic weapons from um, straight from the military. Yeah, and then basically what do cops do? They're called in about 90% of the time to do essentially social work, to deal with problems between couples, you know, arguments between people, you know, things that are not really matters of life and death, that are really a matter of like understanding how people work 
and using a confrontational kind of quasi-military approach to them, uh, I don't think is uh, usually helpful. Well, put, well, we need our social workers and social services available, all of which is practically non-existent right now because of budgetary cuts to uh, social programs. So, also, so it's really more than a more than defunding. It's really rebalancing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, necessarily this goes right up to our bloated federal military, what we call the Pentagon. Can I ask you guys something about the protests? Uh -huh. um, I have a question. I was talking to someone, a colleague, who's played a role in the protests in New York City. And I brought up the economic underpinnings of, of racism, the abuses of the uh, the 1% the, the um, disproportionately affecting black and brown people in the United States, poor people, keeping people in poverty. And this colleague chided me a little bit. She said, well, that's a, that's a typical white move to shift the focus from race to economics. Born out of a discomfort, talking about race directly. And the thing that this protest unique is the focus is singularly on race. That was interesting. Um, yeah, I think that was the big criticism that was weighed against Bernie Sanders is that whenever race relations, what is this race, by the way, where the human species, there is this race itself is a concept, it's cooked up, it's not real. Um, but nevertheless, whenever that came up with Sanders, he would always deflect to this economic uh -huh. disequilibrium in the, in the United States. I did read that uh, op-ed piece by Michelle Alexander. I think that's her name. The woman that wrote the new, the new Jim Crow. Oh right. It was, it was mm -hmm. in the Times. You know, right. it was kind of her manifesto. In fact, she was uh, the uh, is maybe the spokesman for this movement, spokesperson for this movement that uh, that doesn't exist. She's the non-spokesman for this movement, arguably. And in this uh, great op-ed piece in the New York Times, they're kind of what's the word making. Uh, amends for publishing some fascist who said we need to send in the troops and uh, smash all protests. I forget who it was. Cotton? Tom Cotton? Tom, Senator Tom Cotton and the uh, opinion page editor is um, a journalist by the name of James Bennett, who was previously the editor of the Atlantic magazine before coming to New York Times. And he resigned just what, last week? Yeah, over this uh, flap about this and i was his i was his employee for a while yeah yeah doing what i was tutoring his kids nice kids did a very nice kids. where does he live upper east side no they bought a brownstone in harlem ah you know dylan had that house in harlem right do you know it about it no, andrew I don't know about it. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. like I saw it online. He like recently sold. It's the longest time he's lived anywhere. Is this palatial house in Harlem? You know, he sold it for like fourteen million dollars or something. I thought he lived on the Upper West Side because last year after a Beacon Theater performance, I was I left a little early because I had already seen um, the gig the night before. So I, I left. Uh -huh. I, I didn't need to hear all along the watchtower again. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. And I left a little early to beat the crowds. And I was behind the Beacon Theater. Uh, and I stopped to check my phone. And the door behind the Beacon Theater flies open. And a, a, an African-American, very strong man, walks out. And he has a, on his arm is, by, is Bob Dylan being, ah. being escorted out. Bob Dylan's like you. He's trying to leave, too. He's trying to leave early, too. So he must have, you know, bowed and left right away. 
And we were very close to one another. Small, very small man, dressed in the most dignified way. He looked like a Portuguese gentleman with an embroidered suit, um, and that, you know, a fedora hat on. He went into his car. Did you see his blue eyes? I did not. I've never done this before. But the car was moving slowly through traffic, so I just walked after it. Huh. I followed the car um, two blocks, and then it disappeared into a building on Central Park West. And I thought, oh, that must be where he lives. Ah! Right, around, <laughs> right around the corner from the Beacon Theater, actually. Maybe that's why he's always playing the Beacon. I think it is. <laughs> I mean, what I heard, one of the rumors, I'm giving every Bob Dylan rumor in this uh, Lafayette uh, podcast, but uh, another rumor I heard uh, consistently is that all, his main obsession in life is real estate, buying lots and lots of houses. So it could be that, you know, all these things are true. He has like a house in, you know, because I've heard that he lives in uh, Minnesota, somewhere near Hibbing, you know, for example. I, I thought he had a place in Malibu, doesn't he? That's right. Well, he did. I mean, that's where he lived with his wife, you know, decades ago. I don't uh, I think he may still, I think she might still own that house. The one with the dome, like a mosque. Yeah. <laughs> But it's interesting about Dylan as a sort of Joan of Arc uh, Lafayette character also. In yeah. that, you know, he's in his 20s and, you know, suddenly yeah. becomes the speaker, the loudspeaker of the earliest baby boomers. <laughs> when he, uh, his first album, he was 19, I think, yeah. right? Don't you think, uh, uh, Andrew? 20 when the album came out. But he maybe recorded it when he was 19. That, could be, that sounds about right. You know, like um, like uh, like Joan of Arc and the Marquis. I'm interested in this number and age of 19. Well, I think that there is something there. Um, I want to think more about 19, too. I know uh, just as a, another example of um, the significance of age, Eric Erickson, the protege of Sigmund Freud, was obsessed with 30. Huh. Like a lot of people. He thought 30 was a very significant age in the life of great men and women, I suppose. But he uh, wrote primarily about the experience of men, whether it be Martin Luther or, um, or Gandhi. Something happens around the beginning of the third decade at the level of consciousness that, that's significant for, for great men and great women. I missed, I missed my mark. I think when I was 30, I was living in San Francisco. I think I was working as a private investigator then and kind of drifting, as <laughs> I recall, you know, broadly speaking. Anyway, I want to finish my point about Michelle Alexander because I just remembered that I forgot to say what I was going to say, which is that she calls for socialism. She says that none of these problems with, you know, race are going to be resolved without socialism. So, um, and and she kind of endorses Bernie, but regrets that he didn't speak about reparations. So, I mean, I don't think there's a, I mean, that's sort of what I was saying before about a leaderless movement is, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, uh, a range of uh, opinions here from people that, that really think, uh, you know, killer cops are not a good idea to people that want to abolish the police department to people that want to restructure capitalist society or end capitalist society to people that are, you know, utter pure reformists. And I think that, you know, there's no point in uh, fighting over this right now. The one thing I would say, just going back to Lafayette Square, is that, you know, there 
is now, and I believe that the Park Department may tomorrow, that is Wednesday, that is the 10th of June, they say they're going to bring the fence down. This oh. eight-foot fence, it's an enormous fence. But right now there's this void, you know, there's this emptiness, mm. this no man's mm. land. And so there's a lot of possibility of what's going to happen next. And I think that that potentiality is what I'm interested in. You know, unnecessarily Agent Orange gassing and blitzkrieging his way through, you know, moving protesters out of Lafayette Square so that he could walk over and, you know, do his doofus dance in front of the church. Like that call for what I felt at the time was a sort of outright civil war. Hmm. I feel that Trump is, is sort of egging us on to go into civil war, which would, you know, necessarily create a better battle space for him to see a second term. Yeah, it might be his only hope for getting reelected is to is to polarize everything to the point that you have to kind of choose between him and chaos. Mm-hmm. Personally, I would choose chaos. <laughs> the other thing that should be said, I think, is that the French, the real French and these protests are connected you know there is a major demonstration in paris supporting these uh the protests that are going on in uh, george floyd protests in the u.s so there's yeah. still that tradition in france of kind of republican revolutionary support for progressive causes you know it's 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 a tradition that goes back to Lafayette, if not further. Yes, Barry, you're absolutely right. I saw on television, on the news, very impressive showing in Paris hmm. over the past week in terms of a public demonstration. Thousands and thousands of Parisians marching past the Bastille. Wow. It's the image that I saw. Maybe it was on the PBS NewsHour with Judy Woodrow. And Colbert, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert uh, broadcasting from his basement, he had the line, you know, because it was a huge demonstration in uh, Berlin. He said, you know, when the Germans have a big demonstration, uh, you know, some, you know, things are bad when the Germans have a big demonstration telling you you're too racist. So, <laughs> but I want to tell this story of uh, Lafayette. Can I tell it that I just saw on my do I wish Some YouTube video. It's yeah. the Battle of Barren Hill. I think mm. it's still 1777. So it's mm. one of the first uh, battles that Lafayette is commanding troops in. And right. his, his job, that I think General Howe is moving towards Philadelphia. He was told by Washington, your job is to harass the British troops. Do not take a fixed position. So he's still, I think, 19 years old. So he completely disobeys his father figure and takes up this position, which seems to him very uh, safe because he's at the top of a cliff and can look out over the cliff. General Howe really has it in his mind that he's going to capture Lafayette, humiliate the French and uh, humiliate the Americans. So he sends out a huge troop a huge uh, army of uh, whatever you call it, battalion or whatever the hell it is, of 15,000 troops. And they're like surrounding Lafayette on three sides. And on the other side is that cliff. So Lafayette is really totally screwed, but completely unflappable, calm, and comes up with a brilliant solution, which is he sends these little teams of like two and three uh, sharpshooters to go out 
and hide behind various trees, step out, and from different directions, uh, attack the British troops. You know, shoot at them, like, to uh, be like snipers, sniping at the British troops. So this gives the illusion that there's a much bigger force than there is, because he skillfully uh, deploys these little pairs. So the British step back. They're, you know, they're getting shot. They're getting killed. Meanwhile, Lafayette scales down, brings his whole army down the cliff. They somehow uh, escape down the cliff. It's like a daring TV show. And then the British finally approach. They come in. There's all sorts of shooting. And then gradually the British realize they are shooting at each other. There's no Americans left. So he completely, like, like Br'er Rabbit, like Bugs Bunny, like a trickster creature, he outfoxed, outrabbited, and outfoxed the British. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> According to my historian friend, that when it comes to becoming modern, when it comes to becoming modern, Lafayette stands front and uh, center from his perspective in terms of people becoming self-governed, in terms of the transition from feudalism to capitalism, that this historian friend uses the life story of Lafayette to tell that larger historical narrative. In other words, Lafayette started out as a feudal figure and became a kind of capitalist? Or? Well, very much part of the Enchant regime with these aristocratic roots and the transformations he went through early on in life huh. to become a revolutionary models um, larger political transformations historically. Um, huh. I thought that was an interesting point. I think that this term modern is is used by historians in an incredibly vague way. It's, I, it seems to me like early modernism can include Shakespeare. Yeah, you're uh, right. I thought, I thought modern began with Descartes, actually. That's the... Is that right? Yeah, I think... Which is from, what? Uh, 15, philosophical tradition. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. But maybe De but Descartes, you know, he says, all right, I'm not going to believe in anything. I'm just going to close my eyes and see what exists. And then he hears himself thinking, hey, I just said something. I think, therefore I am. And then he goes on to, uh, from that, uh, prove the existence of God. So in a way, he's back to the old feudalistic system. You know, it turns out there is a God after all, and the whole, you know, hierarchy is the valid, you know. <laughs> we wanted to talk about the quote from the Marquis de Lafayette that, that we'd found. And um, if I may, I'd just like to, to read this quote. As though Lafayette were pointing into the future, he writes, When, when the, the government, government violates, violates the people's, people's rights, rights, insurrection is insurrection for the people, is. And for, for each the portion people, of the people, for each portion the most of the sacred people, of the rights, the most and sacred most indispensable of the rights, of duties. and the most indispensable of duties. And that's where we are now. The yeah. government is violating our rights, and we are... Uh, involved in an insurrection yeah yeah most assuredly looking at this quote when the government violates the people's rights which then comes up later in this statement um violates the people's rights and then insurrection is for the people and for each portion of the people 
the most sacred of the rights and the most indispensable of duties. I was interested in a number of those words and also some of the cloudiness around maybe one or two words. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the real question is how we enter from this quote into the Trinity. The Trinity of what? The the Trinity of Andrew's jacket, but also the Trinity of us. (laughs) Because Andrew's jacket says Trinity on it. I'm just for those of you who can't see us. I'm just letting you know. The Trinity of us. Us three uh, gods. <laughs> Whatever we yeah. are. Beings. We're like three beings, but we're also one being. It's like a mystery. Wow. That sounds like the basis for starting a religion. Yeah. Or ending a religion. <laughs> to what degree was he um, an 18th century populist? Did he have deep connections with, um, I'm just curious, each portion of the people? Or is this more of a reflection of his own sense of importance as a great, as a great, as a young great man? Um, yeah. Someone who assumed this role as a revolutionary and had the wealth um, to do so. But I, I would say, you know, just sort of circling back that Lafayette was completely identified with the Continental Army and with the possibilities of self-governance. This experiment in self-governance, I think that he was completely all in on that scene. But I do believe that when it came time to uh, circle back to France and to observe the potential arising of those same values and that same kind of attitude in France, he buckled. That would be kind (laughs) of my broad take, you know. He had a lot to lose, but also I believe he just, the cultural penumbra was too powerful. I mean, my sense, I just read his, you know, biography on Wikipedia in, uh, you know, five minutes, two minutes to figure out where he stood on Napoleon, because it seems to me it's very hard to talk about him without thinking of Napoleon. And uh, in fact, he was uh, against Napoleon freedom from the Austrian prison, but he never liked Napoleon and never uh, sort of uh, agreed to serve Napoleon. So Napoleon, he didn't like the fact that Napoleon was an emperor And I think he voted, he was in some deliberative body that voted against um, Napoleon becoming an an emperor. So he was kind of a consistent politics, like he was pretty much kind of a bourgeois liberal. He was against, uh, you know, the excesses of monarchy. He was kind of a monarchist who didn't want an all-powerful monarch. And, And then he was involved in the Bourbon Restoration but then he felt that the, I think it was Louis the Seventeenth, was too extreme. So he, you know, he seemed to be more, you know. And when the French Revolution got really kind of out of control, they kicked him out. So you know, he he was always kind of for a kind of decent middle ground politics of freedom. Yeah, I think that's mostly very true. And I think he was a really decent guy, actually, and down to earth, particularly in his later years. Um, you know, he committed himself to the management of this um, relatively small estate and into doing animal husbandry, et cetera, et cetera. But he did, nevertheless, in 
1790, accept the role of acting as the tutelary figure figurehead of the revolution. And he didn't understand what, you know, the smartest thing George Washington ever did is he said, no, I don't want to be king. I want to be a president. We should elect a new president and blah, blah, blah. You know, Washington was very emphatic about that. So, you know, and, and, and Lafayette didn't receive that lesson. That would be sort of my broad take. But the key thing I wanted to do was just focus on this quote, you guys. You know, when the government violates the people's rights. Now, what are the rights? And particularly in terms of where we are now, what rights of the people have been violated, hmm. right? Um, and then insurrection, the word itself is a, is fascinating. Um, you know, insurge, you know, to insurge is to rise up. But then the in is also means against, right? But it hmm. can also be an intensifier. But in a way, insurrection, the state of rising up, the in has this kind of ambiguous feeling. And then, hmm. uh, you know, for the people or each portion of the people. So you have that sense of the factionality that a people is not necessarily a coherent the people, like some, um, you know, lump in scene, but that there are, you know, factions within the people. But then he has this, this word, the most sacred of the rights. And for Freemasonry, you know, from that perspective, you know, the sacred is geometry, <laughs> or is it used in the sense of sort of God-given rights that's most sacred? Or is it handed down, you know, from God? Or is it some sort of fundamentalism, like this is a fundamental human right? I see it as a fundamental human right. I see, I, I, I detect Immanuel Kant's political philosophy in the statement. And Kant believed that God could be experienced through moral categoricals. There were certain inalienable rights that all human beings, all rational agents possessed that had a sacred quality. It would it would be um, sanctimonious um, to violate those um, those categorical. Hmm. Sanctimonious? You don't mean that. Sacrilegious. Oh, not, sacrilegious. That's what I meant. That's how I see the sacred quality. I think it's a Kantian thing. You know, yeah, and I think it that would make sense. The, 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 the Enlightenment guys that started this country had this, um, that's where they were coming out of, something like that, Kant or mm -hmm. Locke, mm -hmm. maybe. That's great. And so the and so the protests that are occurring now are, are, you know, out of duty. But what have the people's rights been broken? George Floyd was murdered by these Minneapolis pigs. Were his rights, were the people's rights being broken? Well, I guess I, I think what's kind of beautiful is that, you know, white people in vast numbers are saying, yes, that was us. That happened to us. <laughs> you know, that's how uh, whatever the system has been able to maintain its cruelties for three centuries, five centuries is because of the division between the races. If the white people say, uh, well, you know, it's only a black person. Lynching is not really a problem for us. It's a problem for them. Suddenly, it's a, suddenly I think enough, and I see the millennials as the ones saying this, that, you know, it's us that got, uh, we can't breathe. It's us that got choked by the cop. Mm. I feel it. 
Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.